Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In this episode, I continue reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland, my memoir about loving the church and, in the end, leaving it. This is the third part of the last chapter, though it's not the end of the book, not quite yet. I have to have my knuckles wrapped for performing an irregular marriage ceremony, and I have to begin to take my leave, a departure that will prove deeper and more complete than simply retiring. Let's prepare to say our goodbyes. Sunday afternoon, following the morning services, is a minister's half-day of rest. I would often have a nap. Sometimes we'd take a drive into the mountains. Sometimes we'd have family or friends over for dinner. It was a time to kick back and unwind. But not this day. The Sunday after the wedding, I did the morning services at St. Stephen's as usual. The congregation prayed for Jill and Gio as they began their married life together. We allowed ourselves to bask in the afterglow. We had finally done something. Some parishioners expressed concern for what would happen next. Was I worried for my job? I assured them everything would be fine. But the bishop was still waiting for me to call when I got home. Jean and I had lunch together, and I let a few hours go by. Then I picked up the phone and made the call. The bishop sounded happy to hear from me. That seemed strange. He asked how my services had gone that morning. He made a comment about the nice fall weather we were having. Finally, I couldn't stand it any longer. I said I assumed he wanted to talk about the wedding yesterday. Ah, yes, he said, as if perhaps he'd forgotten all about it. So, tell me what happened. I gave him a full description of the events leading up to the wedding of Jill and Gio's request, and then of the wedding itself. He was quiet on the other end. When I paused, he explained that he was writing everything down. When I was done, he clarified a few details and then said, Yes, well, that's all consistent with what I've heard. He thanked me very much, wished me a good afternoon, and we said goodbye. What an odd duck, I thought. It would be a full week and a half before the other clergy and I would hear any more about it. In the meantime, as word got around, we were referred to as the Rogue Six. But we preferred to think of ourselves as the Steadfast Six. In our view, 
we were not the ones breaking faith with the gospel and with the church. As far back as 2004, the Anglican Church of Canada had affirmed the integrity and sanctity of committed adult same-sex relationships. At the time of our action, 11 dioceses of the Anglican Church of Canada, of the 30 in total, had already permitted local option for same-sex blessings. General Synod had passed the first reading of a motion that would change the marriage canon by removing any reference to gender. Calgary was the only urban centre across Canada that continued to resist the direction of our national church. If there was a rogue in this scenario, it was the diocese, not us. Finally, when the bishop had marshaled his resources, he called us all in. We sat around the board table at the Senate office, waiting for the axe to fall, whatever that would mean. He let us wait a few minutes, and then entered the room with Peter, the diocesan chancellor, whose official role was as the interpreter of canon law. The bishop greeted us, said he had a letter he would leave with us at the end, and then he invited Peter to speak. We all knew Peter, and we liked him. He was a lawyer by profession, but a fun guy by nature. He liked a good joke, the more off-color the better. His sister was an active member of my congregation. Peter was himself a member of the congregation of one of the other six, a liberal congregation like St. Stephen's. We were not prepared for what came next. Peter, looking uncomfortable and not at all his usual self, read us a personal statement he had prepared. It said that, after much deliberation, he had come to the conclusion that our thoughtless action of performing an irregular marriage ceremony had served only to hurt the church. While in the past he might have sided with us, now he saw the error in what we had done to disobey our bishop and bruise the consciences of those clergy and congregations whose faithfulness to Scripture, to tradition, and to the church itself led them to oppose same-sex blessings. It appeared the bishop had set the chancellor up to be the bad cop to his good cop. When Peter concluded his rebuke, the bishop thanked us all for coming in. He distributed his letter to each of us and said that, if we wished, we could follow it up with him, but at some other time. Then he and Peter got up and left the room. We all read the letter silently. By carrying out our action, we had willfully disregarded the authority of our bishop and dismissed the community of the diocese. While the National Church was leaving dioceses to decide this issue locally, that meant he, as our diocesan bishop, had the final say, not us. He reminded us of the oaths of obedience we had taken at our ordinations. Any further actions on our part would be answered through the disciplinary canons of the diocese and of the National Church, which set out the conditions for the dismissal of clergy. We left the boardroom to reconvene in a local bar, where we tried to comprehend what had just happened and what to do next. We had not been fired. That was a good thing. But we had been smitten personally by the Chancellor, which was a strange move, and we had been warned. The bishop had also reasserted his right and his determination to block same-sex blessings in the Diocese of Calgary. What had we really achieved, then, by our action? But the bishop wasn't finished. 
Six weeks later, citing inquiries he had received, he sent out an email to the diocese, the list comprising both clergy and lay leaders, over a hundred recipients. The letter provided the details of our action in the blessing of a civil marriage of a same-sex couple and of his own response to that action, along with that of the Chancellor. He referred to the letter he issued to the six of us, and then he attached a copy of it to his email for all to read. This struck us, among other things, as an invasion of our privacy, releasing to the public a letter that was intended for our individual personnel files. The other five were offended, but they were unwilling to take things any further. I was of a different mind. I procured a lawyer. I lodged a formal complaint with the Privacy Commission of Alberta, which petitioned statements from both parties. Ours filled a small binder. Several months later, the Commission ruled in our favor, recommending that the Bishop receive training regarding his responsibilities in protecting the personal information of those in his employ. I wanted an apology, but that was beyond the scope of the Commission's jurisdiction. Ten days after that, my lawyer received a copy of the Bishop's response. It was contained within a single sentence sent by the Chancellor on the Bishop's behalf. The Chancellor advised that his client did not accept the recommendations set out in the Commission's report. Period. We followed up with a request to the Privacy Commission for a formal inquiry which would take things to the next level, whose findings would be made public, unlike those of the initial investigation. We wondered why the bishop didn't simply say he was sorry. Why didn't he just take a refresher course on his legal responsibilities? Because he knew he didn't have to. That was why. He was the bishop. I was always a keener when it came to my church life. When I was first ordained and finally permitted to participate in the post-ordination training group, I asked if I could stay on for another year, and then for another. When I was invited to sit on diocesan committees, or lead a task force, or organize an event, I turned up with all my ideas and with energy for the work at hand. When I supervised students or assistant curates, I attended all the supervisors' meetings, thirsty for the new skills and learnings that were being offered to me. I was hungry for it all. But following our irregular wedding service and its consequences, something shifted within my heart, even deeper, within my soul. I knew the bishop didn't particularly like me, but I could live with that. It was more difficult when some of my clergy colleagues stopped talking to me, some almost broke their necks to look the other way when they caught me approaching in their peripheral vision. But even that was bearable. 
We're just not always going to get along, all of us, all the time. Besides, I had my few clergy friends, my brothers and sisters-in-arms, and we had drawn closer over the years because of the challenges we'd faced together. Suddenly, I just stopped showing up. I attended only one of the bishop's generous listening events to discuss same-sex blessings, judged it a fraud, a placeholder standing in for the decisions we ought to have been making, and I never went back. Clergy conferences came and went without me. My presence had come to feel like a blight on the proceedings, at least for those who took offense at what I stood for. Mealtimes at those conferences could be particularly awkward, especially if I was forced by necessity to intrude upon a table of my detractors and join them for lunch. So I stopped attending. I observed changes in my personal bearing as well. I no longer wore my clerical collar. I had never been comfortable sporting the clergy look anyway, especially in public where people reacted to the role without knowing the man. But now I wore regular clothes beneath the alb I donned for Sunday worship. Many of my parishioners may not have realized there wasn't an identifiable priest under there. But I knew who I was, priest or not. I also noticed, because it was not a conscious decision, that I was letting my hair grow. I'd sometimes allowed it to go its own way, wavy and a bit unruly. That was my look. But this didn't feel like a fashion statement. It felt like a connection with my former self, before I was ordained, before I was a born-again Christian, as if reaching all the way back to my teens for something I'd left behind. With the approach of my 65th birthday, people started asking about my retirement plans. Would we stay in Calgary? Would I be drawn back to the coast? Would I continue until the mandatory retirement age of 70? Or would I go early? Would I do weddings and funerals and fill in for clergy at their churches to do interim ministry in churches that were without clergy? I didn't have answers to their questions. But I did have a remarkable inner peace about it all. Even as I began considering the options for my retirement and setting a date, it felt like everything would fall into place. It was what I hoped dying would be like, a letting go, an openness, falling into the arms of whatever's next. We began making our succession plans at St. Stephen's. If I left midway through my 66th year, I would have been there almost 20 years. My departure would be rough on the parish. The people who didn't like me had left, most of them, and many had only ever known St. Stephen's with me as its priest. I had confirmed some of the very teens I had baptized as infants, and their weddings wouldn't be far off. But I would be gone. First, I wanted someone on staff who would be able to carry the parish through the transitional period that would follow my retirement. It would have to be someone whose reassuring presence would let everyone know that, while change was inevitable, no one was going to be lost or neglected along the way. That person was Charmaine Evans. Her role as a vocational deacon rather than as a priest would allow her to work her magic behind the scenes in the midst of the people, pushing and prodding, healing and encouraging, rather than leading them from out in front. It was a perfect match. 
I also wanted to make sure the parish had something to focus on after I'd left, something other than the gap I would be leaving at the front of the church on Sundays. That focus presented itself in an engineering report on the state of the parish hall. The aging structure required almost $800,000 of upgrades and repairs, and that wouldn't address any changes we might want to make to the use of the building— we gathered a task force that would think big and act bold to explore alternative uses for the space. This included the real possibility of tearing down the hall and replacing it with mixed housing, a community hub, and social service outlets. This should prove a big enough focus, I thought. And then we had to manage the goodbyes themselves, ensuring that everyone had the chance to express what they felt and say what they wanted to say and make the exchanges that would symbolize the rich and rewarding journey this had been for all of us. I staged a farewell concert, pulling a band together for the occasion. The evening involved all my children, Heather, Rob, and Ben, and also Chad, my son-in-law, who had become invaluable to the church as its communications and technology advisor. It also included one-year-old Josephine, Chad and Heather's daughter, our granddaughter, who danced. It was a night to remember. The congregation orchestrated several goodbyes of its own, including a banquet held in the body of the church, with speeches, an audiovisual presentation, and gifts. On my last Sunday, I returned to the parish ceremonially the symbols of my office they had given me on the day of my induction, a paten and chalice for communion, water for baptism, oil for healing, a copy of the canons of the diocese, which we acknowledged was an ongoing work in progress, the keys to the church, and a Bible in the form of our new illegally rendered edition. I said my goodbyes. I cleared out my office and sent our caretaker away with a lifetime's worth of file folders to be shredded or recycled. I left some things for the next priest, packed the rest, loaded up the car, and drove away. I didn't hear from the bishop or from any of my clergy colleagues beyond my immediate circle of friends. I hadn't expected to, really. Goodbyes are for people who give a shit. A week later, Jean and I were in Hawaii, reading books, walking the beaches, and watching humpback whales breach from our balcony. They were in the ocean. We were on the balcony, not having had that much to drink. It was there that I started the daily journal I'd always intended to keep. We came home, I read some more, I played guitar every day, and then I started writing. Personal essays, songs, a blog, even poetry, though Jean doesn't call it that. I'm still at it, and when I'm done this memoir, I'll keep on. I've had several requests to do weddings and funerals as well. I've had no difficulty saying in each case, It wasn't time yet, but I'm beginning to wonder if it might never be time. Sundays have come and gone, and I have sometimes found myself thinking, oh, they're preparing the altar just about now. Then Holy Week, and Easter, then Christmas. I haven't mustered enough interest to go to some other church. If it ever feels right to return, St. Stephen's is my home. But even then, as a member of the congregation, not as its priest. 
In the weeks and months leading up to my retirement, I'd been feeling that, just as the oracle had predicted, when the time came for me to go, I'd be done. And when it did, I was. And when that fog on blows, I will be coming home. I've been reading from Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. I so appreciate you listening through to the end. I also appreciate the posts you've shared on the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, and the notes you've sent to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. I'll appreciate them even more now that I'm coming to the conclusion of this memoir. For those of us who like things wrapped up at the end, The next episode is the epilogue to the memoir, where I make a few observations about the journey and thank a few people without whom this story would never have been told. I hope you'll stay with me. Until then, I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave.